there's a line in that song, church, which is why I'm, I'm glad that John had it for us today, that um, it's the one that gets me every time we do it, the line that says, I am who you say I am, that there is, there is something fundamental. I mean, this is what we've been talking about all your church, more than about telling what to do, more than trying to program into the structure when someone is confronted with the reality of who they are, that, that that's transformational, right? That, 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 that changes something about us, knowing who we are and knowing who we were made to be. This, this is where we are going this morning in chapter 37, but that in reality, church, that, that's what we've been pressing into this past year as we've been going into Texas together. What does it mean? For us to be the people of God, and if this is who God is and who we are made to be, then what do we do? This is kind of the last five chapters of Exodus where we've been, beginning in chapter 35, this, this piece of if this is who we are, right? If we are made for this covenant life with God, if this is who God is, if this is what he expects of us, what he's asking us to do because of who he is, what is this picture that life then looks like? In chapter 35, if you remember, we looked at what Israel did, and then we also asked the question, maybe more importantly, how did they do it? And we said that covenant life with God is a rhythm of Sabbath keeping and temple building enabled and directed by his Holy Spirit, that when God fills us with his spirit, he leads us to, in, in Exodus, we sought to keep the Sabbath, right? A rhythm of pausing and reflecting and engaging with who God is and just, like, what's his heart? What does he desire for us? What has he made us for? Like this, we have to know who God is if we're going to live as his followers. But he, we're also directed in a rhythm of, of temple building. Remember, we've, we've talked a lot about all the, the analogies and the allegories with the temple in the Old Testament, but a, a picture, which we'll talk a little bit more of what are we building our lives into. So a rhythm of knowing who God is and allowing him to change us into his image is what we said from chapter 35. And if you remember in chapter 36, we said, okay, if that's what God is asking us to do, then what is he trying to, in, in our language, we'd say maybe mobilize the church to do when we engage with other people what what is he looking for us to do and we said maybe not surprisingly it's the exact same thing right that if, if God is asking us as we enter into a covenant of life with him to be people who are constantly in this rhythm filled and led by his Holy Spirit to know who he is and to allow him to make his image you know come forth in our lives it should not surprise us that's what he wants for us to do with, with other people. That's what he is trying to do in the world today, to engage others in letting the Holy Spirit fill them to lead them in the exact same rhythm. And we've been getting this connection between covenant life and discipleship, right? That if this is the life that God has for his people, we've been seeing glimpses of it in the text of saying, well, God wants us to engage others in this work as well. But this is going to become really clear in chapter 37 today, church. It, it's it's good for us, and I've, I've tried to feel out where would this fit, and as I was reading through chapter 37, I thought, right here, this is it. It's good for us to be reminded 
and on the same page as far as what do we say when we mean discipleship. I, I think I told the search committee when I got to know them, it's, it's one of my little pet peeves, and this might just be a Jordan thing, but the way that we tend to talk about discipleship in churches is almost as if it's like one of the many things that we do. You know, we have our missions, we have our outreach, we have our service, and then over here we also have discipleship. Like, it's, it's part of the process, but it's, it's kind of disjointed from everything else. And I, I told him, even to the degree where, you know, some churches will hire pastors who are, you know, the associate of discipleship, right? That it's, it's actually not the senior pastor's job to be leading and discipling the church. That's for another staff member to handle, which I'm... I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but it's discipleship cannot be just siloed out into one thing that we potentially do as a church. We've been seeing, you know, this life of understanding the core of who we are and passing it on to other people. That is what God has asked his people to do. That is not just one piece of the puzzle. This is it. So it's good for us to be reminded if this is so important. Jordan, if it's not just a pet peeve of yours, but if this is the life that God has called us to do, what does this look like? So the picture of discipleship that we're going to see in chapter 37, church, really, it's like I'm going to call it out from 37 today, but it has been in Exodus the entire time. And I'll, we'll talk a little bit too, but it's the exact same thing that Jesus left for his disciples. It's nothing new but may we be reminded and encouraged from his word together today. So chapter 37 is going to show us this, church, that discipleship involves bringing life under God's design. At a core, what we do in discipleship, we are learning to bring our lives to bring the lives of others under God's design. And how do we do this? As the Holy Spirit works God's image out within us. So it's us bringing life under God's design, but it's not really a work that, that we take the lead on. In fact, wherever we take the lead on it, it's not going to happen. It is the Holy Spirit that does this work within us. So if you have your copy of the Bible this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 37, verse 1, and we'll hit the whole chapter. So we see, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made it a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other end. Of the piece uh, with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, and with their faces to one another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the, the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it a handbreadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. 
and he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and its dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. Now he made the lampstand of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and real quick church, calyx, I think if you remember last time we were reading through this, it's, it's like the bud, the, the base of a flower. So you're going to hear the word calyx a lot, just the bud of the flower. It's calyx and its flowers of, were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made it seven lamps in its its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was a square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid the altar of incense with pure gold, its top and around the sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the picture of discipleship that you've given us. God, even as we might not quite be aware of it this morning, Lord, knowing that this this chapter is not one that we're probably going to spend much time with in our quiet times. Father, thank you for your consistency. Thank you for your, your faithfulness to your people as they're learning to take on this work, God. And thank you for giving us a, a front row seat as to what you are leading Israel to do. Father, show us how that might apply for us as your church today. In your name we pray, amen. Now again, for those of you with your first week here, you, you may hear what I, what I cast in the picture of discipleship and go, I'm not really sure how you're getting that from a list of directions about, and he built this and he built that. I can understand where, where that may be a little bit hard, so I'll do my best to kind of reference some previous things we've talked about in Exodus. But guys, as we are reading through chapter 37 this morning, the big picture that we really need to see that is taking place is that discipleship involves bringing life under God's design, okay? There's one phrase in particular that should, you should have heard it so many times that you, you probably actually tuned it out, but it's the phrase, and he made. You know, some of the English word changes it up a little bit because even the English knows it feels redundant to keep repeating it over and over and over again, but he made, he fastened, he built, he overlaid, he cast, there are 28 instances of this phrase being said in 29 verses. Now, I remember in English class, our teacher told us, if you really want somebody to understand something, you have to say it at least three or four times to get their attention. 
So when we're seeing the same phrase in Hebrew being repeated 29 different or 28 different times, uh, that should be telling us something. That it should make us pause and go, okay, why did Moses not just say, and he made, and then the laundry list? Why does he keep saying he made this, he made this, he made this? It tells me that the emphasis of what Moses is talking about is not actually on the physical stuff that he's making, right? Because if it was, he would just give us the list. But he's trying to tell us, no, there's something important about the fact that Bezalel is actually doing the work. The Hebrew there is the word asah, and it literally means to make, okay? Moses is saying Bezalel literally physically made the stuff. And if you remember back to chapter 25, if you were here, you're thinking I've probably read the exact same chapter because chapter 25 gives the directions for what Bezalel makes in 37. And if you remember from 25, we talked about what each of these things meant that Bezalel was building. We talked about how the ark was, was righteousness, that when God was calling his people to build an ark, he's saying, hey, if you're going to be my people, you have to build a space in your life for righteousness. You have to allow me to make you right with me. So Bezalel makes an ark. He says you, we need fellowship, right? That in the table, as God says, you're going to build a table for me, so for you guys, to your priests, to eat a meal with me, you need fellowship. You need more than just being made right with me. You need to be in my presence, like to the point where we're going to eat meals together. So we see there's an importance not just to build space in our lives for righteousness, but for fellowship. We see in the lampstand, it was a picture of God's life. God's saying, hey, I'm going to bring you light. Light in the Old Testament being a very clear picture for the Israelite nation of life. That if God is bringing light to his people, he's bringing life to them. So as they're being made righteous with God, as they're in his fellowship, they're taking up his life as their own. And then we saw in chapter 30 in Exodus that they made this altar of incense. And if you guys remember, that was one of my favorite tidbits because it taught us that even smell was important to God. We talked about how certain smells trigger things in our memory. If, you, if you've ever walked into a high school gym room, you remember that smell from what it was like when you were there. Or if you have favorite things like I share with you guys, we would always have pancakes at my grandmother's house. So the smell of pancakes makes me think about grandma. That God says this smell even should trigger a reminder in you that you are going to be glorifying me. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. He says we are to offer our lives as a fragrant aroma. That in every facet of our lives, even the smell of our life should be pleasing, glorifying to God. So if you see chapter 25 and chapter 37 next to each other, Bezalel is doing exactly what God said. But remember the context that this comes in. Last week in chapter 36, we looked at this one phrase in particular. Technically, it was in 35. In verse 34, and he, God, has inspired him, Bezalel, to teach. And we talked about teaching being a picture of filling others with the Holy Spirit. That that's what the Hebrews actually trying to get at. That Bezalel is not just doing this work by himself, but he is spending the time pouring out the Holy Spirit that God has filled him with into the lives of others so that they themselves are also doing this work. Church, that it's not just for me 
or for you, the individual, that God wants this of. This is what he's after with all of his creation, right? That he wants all his people to be building their lives in righteousness, all of us to be making our lives right with him. All of us in fellowship, being drawn into his presence. All of us laying our lives down and taking up his life as our own. All of us, right? Our, our whole world glorifying him. So this, this call of discipleship, we read this and go, well, he's, he's just being obedient to live out a design. And, and that makes us think that in our, our Western minds, the focus is on the stuff, right? We have to go make the things exactly like he did. But Moses is saying, no, the emphasis is on the fact that he is allowing God to build something within him. That the design that God set forth, he's allowing it to come to fruition in his life. It's a picture of discipleship being this process, this life that you and I take up, where we are allowing God to build his image, build his design within us. And church, I know that for some of you, that's not going to be very, uh, it's not going to be new news to you. Okay, that, that might be something you're like, yes, okay, I, I, I understand. But if that's really true, church, that changes the way that you and I minister to one another. Because if we realize, okay, then life, life is now about bringing what I have and bringing what other people have and who we are under the design of God, that changes how we think about it. This actually gives us a lot more room for grace. Because if we're bringing every part of our life under God's design, right, this God that we've seen in Exodus, he's infinite. He's holy. He, he is so far greater than we are, right? Right? We cannot totally comprehend. We've even seen him point out, this side of eternity, we're not going to fully get this right. Okay? And if that's the God whose image we are called to emulate, man, there's a lot more room for grace in our faith than we typically even give ourselves, especially if we approach discipleship in the, the vein of correctness, which is what we talked about last week. Church, I, this, this is a... A personal struggle for me, and I'm, I'm assuming, hopefully correctly, that I'm not the only one here this morning that has a tendency to beat oneself up when they have done something they know they should have done better. Like, and I've, I've long attributed that to say, well, that, that's discipline. I mean, that, that's the spirit within me going, Jordan, you should have known better. And I'm realizing in this picture of discipleship, that's not necessarily always true. If the Spirit is really bringing God's life out within me, there is a conviction piece. But he's not leading me to continually be beating myself up over failing to achieve a correct standard. Not if, if he is working with me to bring my life under the design of a God I'm still learning about. So may we not equate discipleship with correctness, just like we talked about last week. This also means, if this is true, that there's a lot more room for patience in the church and in discipleship. I know one of the biggest things that I have faced in ministry is, is a sense of urgency, right? I told you guys last week about the, uh, the, uh, the urgency of momentum, right? That we, we have to keep doing, we have to keep going, because if not... We lose momentum, and something else takes the space. And, and I, I mentioned offhand, but I'll, I'll say it again. When we are thinking in terms of momentum, what's really driving us is a sense of urgency saying, 
I don't know who or what is going to be with me if I'm faithful to this work. Meaning our focus is not with God at that moment. We, we have an urgency surrounding the doing. And what we're seeing in chapter 37 is a different type of urgency. It's an urgency not to say, oh my goodness, if these are all the things we have to do, we have to get them done. It's an urgency saying, oh my goodness, if you're telling me I have to live in the image of a God who's infinite and holy, I gotta know that image as well as I possibly can if I'm going to be living faithful to him. It is a different sense of urgency. Again, church, it is not an urgency around correctness, although please hear me. If we are living out a design, God does care what the design looks like. But the urgency that we are seeing, that Moses is pointing to when he keeps saying, he made, he made, he made, it's not on the stuff that he's making. It's not on the stuff that Bezalel is actually doing. The urgency is in Bezalel going, if this is the image of God, I got to know more about that if God wants me to be the one sharing this with other people. Church, that also means that if this is true, there's a lot more room for community in our, our walk of faith together than we realize. If, if discipleship, I've thought about this, if it involves bringing life under God's design, and we got to know who God is, then we really, really hurt ourselves when we pride ourselves on saying that our view of God is the most correct, is the most complete one that is out there. When I was, when I was young in my faith, I had a pastor, the phrase he used with me is stockpile mentors. Just always keep a, a, a long list of people who are ahead of you in the faith, that are maybe of different backgrounds in the faith, that are they're gonna keep you growing. And, and it, it's, it's work, okay? It's work to keep up with a stockpile of mentors. And I, I've, uh, I've accumulated them, hopefully not selfishly, but you know, I want to know who God is. And I, I pray that I'm humble enough to say that even though I may be able to teach, maybe I'm able to understand the word, that if my community and the only people I listen to are exactly like me, we are probably all missing the exact same thing. Now, I do want to be clear, this is not a call to go looking to other religions to see what our God is. But I think it is very important for us to consider the community that we keep when we talk about Christian community. If it is a community like me, where they only look sound, do the exact same things as me, same season of life, same season of faith maturity, same, same viewpoints on culture, same viewpoints on the world. If we are only the exact same people, we are all going to collectively miss some part of the image of God. And, and so I, I, I feel burdened, church, just, just to let you consider this morning, man, who is in our Christian community? There, there is a beauty in peers, because, man, we wrestle through the same stuff together. That is a joy. We should not be doing this alone. But if we're all wrestling through the same thing together and we don't have anybody to turn around and say, yeah, man, you're going to get to this at some point. I'm still working through it. If we don't have anybody older than us to say, hey, what do you think about this? I'm here. What do you do? If we don't have that church, we are missing this. So this fact that Bezalel is doing this work 
that we're told this right after the fact that he was bringing other people in to do the work and filling them with the Holy Spirit, not a coincidence, church. That community is important. And this is where you've heard me use the word reconciliation a lot in the book of Exodus. Really, it's, it's, a, it's a big word. It can have a lot of theological meanings. But at its core, to reconcile something really just means to make things consistent with, to make things united with. You're taking two things that are at odds and saying, how can we bring them together? This is the picture of discipleship that we have seen in the book of Exodus, that chapter 37, Moses says, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Discipleship involves bringing life under God's design. Now, the how, the how we do this matters. And chapter 37 points this out, too. And and I, I really had to dig in deep with this church, so stick with me here, because I was... I missed this the first couple times I read this this week and previous weeks when I was trying to plan ahead. Notice how Bezalel builds each piece of the temple according to God's design. Okay, if you look at the first nine verses, we're told a lot of details about how he built the ark. And some of you are thinking he probably read the same verse twice because it, you know, the, the cherubs were facing each other, their wings were over the seat, the cherubs were facing each other, they were over the seat. Like it, it repeats itself a couple of times, almost as if Moses is trying to Call your memory back to something. He says, go back and look at chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. Bezalel builds the ark exactly as God said, build the ark. Same thing with the table. If you look at chapter 37, verses 10 through 16 here, how Bezalel makes the table is exactly how God said to do so in chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. This is the same for the lampstand. Chapter 37, verses 17 through 23, and chapter 25, 31 through 40. It's the same with the altar of incense, which is verses 25 through 28 here, and chapter 31 through 10. He's building it exactly as God said to do it. Why should that jump out to us this morning? There's two really big things with this church. Which one came first? First off. Did God start? Are we told first that Bezalel was told to go do the work? Or were we told in Exodus that God gave his design to his people? Which one came first? The design. God started with his design before the work was done. God knew his people weren't going to know what in the world he was talking about when he said, build me a tabernacle, you're going to have an altar, you're going to have priests, you're going to have a table, you're going to have all this stuff in it. God didn't start with telling them, go make these things. He started with, here's what all of this looks like. And then the work is done later. And what little his people would have known, it wouldn't have been from God, it would have been from Egypt. We've talked a lot about why Egypt is not great in this book. But the second key thing that's going on here is who got the original design, church? Do you guys remember? In chapter 25, who is God speaking to? Is he speaking to Bezalel? He's speaking to Moses. So it means that what Moses had to receive first, that's what got passed on. That God was not going directly to Bezalel. He went to Moses, gave the design to Moses, and now Moses has gone and given the design to Bezalel in order for Bezalel to do the work. And remember, we, we said last week, how? 
How was Bezel able to do the work? In chapter 31, verse 3, and I apologize, church. Maybe we'll just make a short and I'll amend last week's sermon because I missed this last week. But we were told in chapter 35, verse 31, that Bezalel was filled with the Spirit of God. And I pointed out a couple places in chapter 36 that showed, yeah, and he was pouring the Spirit of God with God into other people. But I missed that we were already told that in chapter 31, verse 3, that God says, now I've set him aside because he is filled with the Spirit of God. That what is enabling Bezalel to do the work is not because he was told the correct work to do, but the fact that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a picture, church in 37, of God's people being filled with his Holy Spirit to bring their lives under the design of God. And again, that might not sound groundbreaking, But let's look at the implications, okay? Because when I'm reading this this week, I'm going, I don't know if I can confidently say that my life and my focus on ministry always perfectly aligns with this. The first implication, that God starts with a design before the work. Is this the way we approach our world? Is this the way that we approach our culture? Do we start with the work, what we're trying to get people to do, what we're trying to convince them to do? Or do we start with the design? Because there is a pattern, there is a progression that is taking place in Exodus 37 that I realized, I think we read over. When when I hear us talk about being active, we're usually, like I said with the urgency, it's usually tied to the doing more than it is tied to, but we got to know the design. If we're going to do the work right, if we're going to lead others to do the work right, we, we have to know the design. People have to know the design. Look at the second implication. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. Is this how we present faith? Is this the way we engage our culture? Do do we care more about trying to get people to do and to say the right things? Or do we care more about trying to bring God's Holy Spirit to them? Okay? The way that I I would picture this, and I would encourage you, let's let's put ourselves in Moses' position this morning, okay? For, For all intents and purposes, Moses is a general contractor, okay? He's been given the blueprints for this tabernacle filled with all this stuff, that he's supposed to lead the people of God and making. And here's Bezalel. Bezalel's a junior contractor, okay? How is Moses going to work with Bezalel to make sure that the temple is built in accordance with God's design? If we were in Moses' place, what would we start with? Would we start with telling, would we give him the work before the design? Would you go to him and say, hey, I know you have no clue what a tabernacle looks like, but it has this, it has this, it has this, it has this. You need to go make these things. For us, if we're thinking about building a house, when you're telling the contractor what you want, do you go to them and say, hey, you need to give me three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a kitchen, a basement? Do you start with the work that they have to do? Or do you go to the contractor and say, here are the blueprints? Which, which I want to be careful, church. The blueprints include all that information in it, okay? They make very clear it has three bedrooms, it has two bathrooms, it has a kitchen, it has a basement, half of it's unfinished, here's where the plumbing goes. It has all that information in there. But you don't go to the contractor and start telling them where to put it before you give them the blueprint that shows them where does this go. 
And I realized, church, if this is what our mindset is on discipleship, what we're seeing here in 37, we have to realize this morning we cannot force someone to bear the image of a God they do not know. We can't. We can't. So the way that we think about what we do as a church, it cannot be a picture of discipleship that's just trying to get the correct information or the correct process across. We can't be telling people to do the work of a God they don't know. But we should trust, man, if we show them the design of our God, man, as Bezalel sees this, he goes, yes, sir, right away, Moses. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm going to go do this. Look at the second implication, church. Would you give the design to just anyone? If we're going to build a house, are you going to take the design and just go give it to anybody in the street and say, hey, here's the design, I need you to go build this? Or, or better, would you say, well, I'm going to bring you to go build the house with me? You would want to give the design to someone who's capable, right? We're going to pass on the design to a contractor. What makes us capable? I mean, we've been seeing this picture that is the Holy Spirit filled within us that enables us to live out the design. So church, that means for us, we can't expect someone who's a believer or someone who's not a believer to be living out the image of a God. Not only do they not know, but the image of a God who's not dwelling within them. And I want to speak real quick for, for those of you who are believers this morning, because it's the same way when we think about trying to change, you know, if, if we have bad habits or we see something in our lives, we're saying, man, that just doesn't look like the image of God. If we just be like, God, I just need to pray more. I just need to get in your word more. And that's going to fix everything. Just trying to do this on our own power is, is no different. Church, if the spirit is not in it, it will not happen. We cannot expect someone who does not have the Holy Spirit to start living out the design of a God that they don't even know. This is why the Holy Spirit, that Jesus tells his disciples, this was so foundational. Jesus even told them, do not go and share the gospel. Wait in Jerusalem until you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, then you have all the power to go and testify to Judea and Samaria and the earth. He says in John 14, 15, again, he's, he's trying to get the disciples ready for this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You will do everything that I've told you to do. In essence, you will bear my image. But how do we do this? Right afterwards, verse 16, verse 17, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. Ooh, so Jesus is going to give us someone that actually leads us to know how to do this work. Who is this? The spirit of truth. And Jesus even says, verse 17, the world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, disciple. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Church, Jesus is telling the world, you cannot expect the world to function in a Christian bubble if they do not know the design of God to begin with and if they are not filled with the Holy Spirit to begin with. Therein lies our urgency. There is where Jesus says in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will be the one to teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. This is where Paul says in Romans 10, 12 through 15, 
There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great. How do we get to that point? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So how is, how is someone going to know to live like God if they don't know the God that they're trying to live like? And how are they to believe in him of one they have never heard? If they're not going to know who God is, how are they going to hear? Jesus says the world's not going to accept the Spirit because it doesn't know the Spirit. It doesn't see the Spirit. It doesn't hear the Spirit. And when it looks at the church and sees the exact same problems in the rest of the world, they see there's nothing different about you. So why should we go to the church? Church, the picture of discipleship that we are seeing this morning, it's, it's what Paul says. How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful is it that Moses takes the design that God has given and he gives the design to Bezalel. And Bezalel, being filled with the Holy Spirit, teaches other people to be filled with the Spirit and to carry it out. I mean, this is what we are after, church. This is what we ought to be after. That discipleship, if, if we're going to talk about what do we do as a church, where are we going to be involved in, what kinds of activities, what things are going to take place here and in our lives, we're going to be building the space for the Holy Spirit to work out God's image within us, to be bringing our lives under God's design. And I want to encourage you this morning because, I don't know, this, this hit me hard this week. But not because I think we don't do this well. If you hear me passionate this morning, it's because I want to encourage you to stick true to this work. Okay? Because we do, we do live in a day and age where I, I realize just in our, my conversations with you, man, we struggle as a people. And this is not just unique to the church or not the church. We just, we struggle with who we are. And a lot of the issues, whatever, I mean, you, you could, whatever issue you want to call it, whatever issues we see with the brokenness in our world, it stems from us not knowing and not trusting who we are. And so just like a contractor would not go to somebody who has no clue what the design is and tell them to do the work without showing them the design, church, we cannot function that way. We can't. It's going to be very tempting because when you function in that capacity, it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in, ah, but if we get this education across here or if we get this program in place here, man, we're going to nail it down. That's not what we see. And I have not heard that in your hearts. And I want to encourage you, church, as we move into new seasons of life and ministry together, please do not, do not stray from this. It, it has been, it has been one of the biggest joys of a pastor to, as we have grown over the past year, know that so many of us are, are very young in our faith, are new in our faith. And that, that's beautiful for me because it's, it's, to me, that's people who've said, man, I've just got this glimpse of who I need to be. It's in Jesus, and I want that. 
What does that mean? And, and as you're doing that, I mean, you guys have been inviting your coworkers and your neighbors to come here. You guys have been, I mean, we, we've, we've created some small groups in the church, but several of you have even come to me and asked about, well, we can't make either of those nights. Can we form our own? Like, like this, is, this is what is, I'm seeing take place. One of my favorite moments here was after Baptism Sunday, several of you guys came up and said, man, that was my favorite moment here. And I went, we've been working hard all year long, and you waited for an entire year to tell me that was your favorite moment. But then the flip side of that being, no, but what you guys got excited about was somebody seeing the image of God and saying, I want that. That that's important to me. And, and, and I don't really fully understand all of what I'm supposed to do with that, but I want that. And the baptism being a way of saying, Hey, guys, I also don't know, like, you don't know all, all this means, but I want this. Help me with this. That, church tells me, we do see discipleship involves bringing life under God's design. And I do see, guys, we, I have felt it more here than I have in other places, and I'm not trying to give you all a big head, but I, there are, one of, one of my favorite things week in, week out is the fact that Whenever service ends, I can't leave for at least another 30 minutes because so just and it's different every week. But you guys gather together specifically to pray over one another after the service, because that tells me you guys are record. This is first. It tells me this is a safe enough space for you to be vulnerable with one another. But it tells me that you really want the Holy Spirit to work. So much so that you're going to go to somebody else who's filled with the Spirit and say, hey, I am burdened with this. The Spirit within me is grieved with this. Can you pray for me? Like, you have the Spirit in you. Can you pray for me? And I love, and this is going to sound strange, but I love that it's not always me, okay? That you don't go to me because you think I'm the pastor or I have somehow more effective prayers than the rest of you. But you go to one another because you see the power of the Spirit that dwells within. Guys, it is encouraging. It is encouraging to see you know, this, this picture of discipleship, this life that God has for his people. I see it. And I don't, I don't want us to lose sight of that, okay? I don't want us to lose sight of that. And so as we, we close this morning, I, I want to pray this over you. And I, I realized I have been doing this for a long time uh, someone who is a friend of mine who's actually going to be preaching here in a few weeks filling in for me, he asked me, he said, so do you, do you write your own prayers? And I hope none of y'all been giving me credit. The, these are, they come from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. Um, it's a little way of slipping some high church in, but really it's, it's calling upon some very powerful prayers that saints thousands of years before us have been praying. So church, just knowing that the work we undertake, it, it is difficult because it is not within our cultural norm to take on discipleship in this matter, but this is what we see in scripture. The same people have wrestled with this. So may we receive the prayer this morning. Oh Lord God, there is no blessing we implore, but thou art able to give, has given already to countless multitudes, all unworthy, all guilty like ourselves. Make us willing to receive the supply of our need from thy bounty. To this end, convince us of sin. Soften our hard hearts to bewail our folly, to bewail our ingratitude, our pride, our unbelief, our rebellion, our corruption. 
Through the law may we die to the law and then look with wonder, with submission, with delight to the provision thou hast made for the glory of thy name and the salvation of sinners. Give us a hope that makes us not ashamed, a love that excites to holy obedience, a joy in thee that is our strength, a faith in thy son who loved us and died for us. May we persevere in duty when not even fully conscious of thee. May we wait upon thee and keep thy way. May we be humble and earnest supplicants at thy feet. May we live continually as on the brink of eternity. Let us be at thy disposal for the duties and the events of life. Submit our preferences to thy wisdom and will. Resign our enjoyments if thou shouldst require it as our absolute proprietor and our best friend. In our unworthiness and our provocations, make us grateful for the means of grace and the ordinances of religion and teach us to profit by them more than we have done. Help us to be in the spirit on this Lord's day, to enter upon the Sabbath mindful of its solemnities, duties, privileges, setting all things worldly aside while we worship thee. May we know the blessedness of men whose strength is in thee and in whose hearts are the highways to heaven. We love you, Lord. We don't claim to know that we know you as much as we should. But we want to. In your name we pray.